As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, I am uh, I am really excited about this episode. <laughs> I'm. Aren't you always excited about episodes? Aren't we both always really excited <laughs> yes. about episodes? Yes, they they are like my children, and I love them all. Um, but I have to say, this one we've been trying to set up for a while, uh, and it fits very squarely into haha, I made a pun um if it's very squarely <laughs> into our supply chain and logistics episodes from this year we are going to be talking about pallets so those you know wooden crate like things that you use to actually move goods around the world uh, I'm very excited about this one as you said uh, you know we've been talking so much about logistics and supply chains obviously everybody knows that but one of the things that sort of makes the story fun or interesting is there is an infinite amount of depth. And so, you know, it's like, okay, you talk about mm. ships and then you talk about containers and then you talk about warehouses and then you think of like in warehouses, there's forklift operators and forklifts lift up wooden things that are on wooden pallets and the supply chain for wooden pallets themselves, as we know, has been stressed. There's been a huge surge in the price of wooden pallets. Availability is an issue. And as we know from many of our uh, episodes, all it takes is one little thing to go missing and you can't sell it. It's like, you know, you like think about a house. All, if you <laughs> don't have faucets, you can't sell a house. You know, if you don't, if you have a shortage of wooden pellets, that disrupts everything. And that's sort of one of the lessons from 2022. One thing that you hardly ever think about, if there's an issue, it creates problems. Totally. And I don't know about you, but one of the great things of doing these episodes is you always sort of learn new things. And one thing I learned in doing the prep for this episode is that there is a subcomponent of the producer price index for wooden pallets. And as you might imagine, uh, given all the anecdotes about shortages um, and what we saw in the price of lumber earlier this year, it's been shooting up. And uh, I think our trade correspondent over at Bloomberg, uh, Brendan Murray, he actually reported that you know, depending yeah. on where you are in the world, the usual price tag of a wooden pallet is something like nine or twelve dollars. And now it's it's getting up to fifteen dollars or more. So clearly some interesting pricing dynamics going on there. And I am very, very pleased to say we we really do have the perfect person to 
discuss this. He has been described as the elder statesman of the pallet world. Uh, we're going to be speaking with Marshall White. He's a professor emeritus at the Department of Sustainable Biomaterials at Virginia Tech, which I just learned also has a giant statue honoring the pallet industry. Whoa. So, uh, you know, learning tons of new things already. Uh, Marshall, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. So I'm thinking of a way to phrase this, but, you know, I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily assume there to be a specialized palette professor at yeah. a university dedicated to technology. So why is that? Why, why are you there? What, what do palettes have to do with we have an industry and university cooperative that back in 1976 led to the establishment of the Pallet and Container Research Laboratory at Virginia Tech. And basically, the justification when people come by this facility and kind of comment, you mean there is a laboratory dedicated to pallets, is that <laughs> the statue indicates, the statue you reference indicates pallets move the world. It's the largest consumer of wood, and so it has an impact on natural resource and natural resource availability. It has a direct impact on the cost of consumer goods. It is, if you will, the critical component in the unit load portion of supply chains for product moving around the world. It's the interface between all of the handling and shipping equipment and the packaged product. So its performance is critical to the success of supply chain. <sighs> So, God, I, can we go three hours? I already have like a billion questions <laughs> about now. Maybe we won't go that long, but I already have tons of questions just literally based on that first uh, answer. Did you say it's the largest consumer of wood? Yes. When you look at the total volume of wood, basically the combination of corrugated packaging and the wood pallet itself really becomes the largest use of wood fiber. Good news is is most of it's recycled fiber, hmm. but it is a huge use. And it makes an impact on decisions in terms of uh, stewardship of our natural resource. You mentioned research and development of pallets. And, and I'm curious what that actually looks like. Because when I think of pallets, you know, I, I think of some pieces of wood that are stuck together. Um, I think I used one of them like when I was 10 years old as the floor of a treehouse that I was building. I tend to think of them as a very low tech item, but what sort of design process or research actually goes into them? It's extensive. Obviously, that's been the prime mission of this pallet and container research laboratory here at Virginia Tech. When mm. you look at that pallet, you don't recognize you know, from the 10,000-foot view, they all look the same or similar. But in fact, there mm -hmm. are subtle differences in each. And we custom design pallets to optimize the supply chain for which it's intended to be used for certain products yeah. and certain packaging systems to move through certain supply chains. We custom design them. We specifically select wood species, the moisture content of those wood species, the dimension of every part that goes into a pallet to optimize its performance are critical decisions in the design process. And so a lot of the research we do at Virginia Tech is just studying the relationship between these characteristics of pallet design and their performance as they move through the supply chain. Now, 
We've done a number of episodes on shipping containers. And of course, shipping containers, one reason that they're perceived to be revolutionary is their, I guess I would say, fungibility. They can, you know, stack very nicely on a cargo vessel. They can go on a truck. They can go on a train, et cetera, and they all fit together. Do these, do the different types of pallets, and I want to get into the variations, do they all, are they all like, interchangeable from a supply chain perspective such that any given forklift or any given system to move uh, materials can move like other basic specs of all the different pallets such that they don't need their own uh, uh, handling equipment. You know, really what you're referring to, Joe, is, is standardization. Yeah. There is this two broad categories of pallets in use throughout the world. And one of those is a general purpose pallet. That is the pallet that's designed to support a wide variety of product and packaging systems through a wide variety of supply chains. Our rental pools, such as the CHEP or PECO or IGPS in this country, reflect that. That's a general purpose design that's to be used to support many. Sorry, could you just back up? What were the names of the design? The rental, the, the pallet rental. Uh, CHEP is one example, PECO another, IGPS another. Okay, they Got rent it. pallets. They maintain title to those pallets as they're being used. But you know, in terms of total shipments and total number of pallets, that's less than 50%. Then we have this huge volume of custom design pallets, those used basically in the industrial goods sector. And in that regards, uh, software are used to optimize those designs uh, for that broader part of the market, which is the industrial sector and non-standardized sector. So there are those two broad categories of pallet designs out there. So you mentioned companies which produce and rent out pallets. Could you maybe walk us through what the typical, I guess, life cycle of a pallet would actually be? So if if I'm a company of some sort or a business and I order my pallet from one of these rental businesses, could you walk us through what what the process looks like from production to pallet death, I guess? The the pallet rental organizations will often tell you that the life expectancy of the pallet is infinite, and that is because they continually repair and maintain them in the marketplace. Um, Life cycle would be um, these pallets are aggregated into warehouses, uh, either owned or operated by the rental organizations or subcontractors. Their sales organizations have a contract with their customers to supply pallets. It's a supply chain that's very front-end loaded for the rental industry, and that is that the manufacturer of the product, uh, the soap or, or whatever, pays the bulk of the rental fee. They basically pay an issue fee, they pay a palletization fee, and then after a period of time, they pay a certain amount of money Uh, per day, if you will, for using that. When that pallet moves through the supply chain, after the product is offloaded, then those pallets are inspected. Some have to be repaired, and they go to a repair facility and then end up back in a warehouse ready to be reissued. 
Some are, of course, all not in bad condition and can be reissued right away. Uh, Some of the big receivers now, such as Walmart, receives these pallets. If they're in good shape after inspection, they'll be reused immediately within their system. And so that repair continues and continues. Now, in reality, there is a final. Once, basically, treating it as a capital asset, sorry to get technical here. No, please. You should retire the pallet when it is amortized, right? And and that's the point at which its average cost per use is a minimum. And that includes depreciation in capital asset, includes maintenance costs. And then it also includes the original price of the pallet when it was put into the system. And so at the end of the day, yes, even the rental pallets become fully amortized such that it is better now because of its condition to replace it, okay, and continue to maintain the new structure rather than continuing to maintain the old structure. And these rental organizations understand that very well. One short question. How many years is that, or how many, how long is that typically, that full amortization? That might be a $64,000 question. (laughs) You know, it varies tremendously, number one. Number two, you're going to love this. It depends, okay? (laughs) Very helpful. You know, seven years, eight years, maybe longer. Depending on the number of times it is reissued and reused, it could be 10 years or longer. Can you talk a little bit further about why the industry emerged with this market structure of a handful of Mm. rental players as opposed to say, like, why doesn't Walmart just own a bunch of pallets? Uh, It takes money to get into that business. You have to capitalize it. It is not an easy business to get into because initially you have to purchase a lot of general purpose pallets, which, by the way, are expensive. Okay, these pallets are expensive. There have been attempts to set up similar programs where people or companies buy in with a certain number of pallets. And there, the title is not maintained, and such the responsibility of repair is not maintained. And those have not been successful. So we come back to the companies that have been able to find the money to capitalize this and who have the expertise. And there are very few of them. So this leads into the next question quite nicely. But what are the cost inputs that actually go into making pallets? So I imagine wood would be one of them. And then it sounds like, given the fact that you're repairing these things continuously, it sounds like labor would be the other big one. Well, we have to separate rental and reuse from pallets that are owned and the title changes. Mm -hmm. You know, there is this whole world where you buy a pallet Uh, generally not standard, custom design for your product, for the supply chain it moves through. And that title gets transferred to the customer, essentially. And that's one world. And then there's the rental world. But you have in the manufacture of pallets, uh, over 50% of the cost is raw material. And that's the wood that goes into it, probably closer to 60 to 70%, depending on the design, okay? You have, of course, all the direct and indirect labor, which could be on the order of 20%, 25%. And, and then finally, you have things like fasteners, uh, which is really only about 5% of the cost. But as I'm telling everybody, 
the quality of the nail you use to assemble a wood pallet has as much impact on performance as does the wood, but it's only 5% of the cost. Don't get me started on that subject. <laughs> what kind of wood goes into it? Everything that's generally available, uh, but it's low grade. We do not, and this is important, there's a lot of misleading information out there in the marketplace that uh, we cut down trees to make pallets. You couldn't afford to do that. Uh. We cut down trees for housing purposes in the whole softwood sector. We cut down hardwood uh, for mill work. We cut down hardwood for uh, furniture. This is high grade. You, you want to extract, a sawmill needs to extract a maximum amount of value out of that log, okay, to justify cutting it down and sawing it. You cannot do that by selling to the pallet sector. So the pallet sector, every hmm. tree, every log, has quality wood on the outside of that log, and then the inside, the quality is lower. And so after these mills sell off the high-grade material, then the lower grade ends up going into the pallet market, and that's important. But in terms of species, it's whatever's available. In the Pacific Northwest, it's Douglas fir, it's hemlock. In the East, it tends to be more hardwood. In the central U.S., you'll find uh, the aspens. Uh, it's whatever tree grows in that region that is used by the pallet sector. Uh, Marshall, you mentioned the importance of nail quality in addition to um, the quality of the wood. And I'm curious, again, going back to the sort of life cycle or purpose of a pallet, what are the the stresses on the actual pallet structure that are most likely to occur? Is it stuff like damp storage conditions leading to wood rot or, you know, just planks basically breaking from the load of stuff that they're actually carrying? Like what is most likely to happen um, to these pallets such that they might need to be repaired or replaced? As I explained to my students every semester, if we could get rid of forklifts, pallets would last forever. <laughs> it's the impacts primarily of the uh, pallet to handling with devices like forklifts that do most of the damage, not all of it, but most of the damage. Uh, pallets, after they're unloaded, generally they can be manually handled and carried around and prepped for the next use. They're dropped, and that breaks pallets as well. It is not necessarily the load level on top of the pallet that breaks the pallet. It's the rough handling it receives as it moves through the supply chains that causes most of the damage. Interestingly enough, though, to get back to your point, fasteners have the biggest impact on resistance to damage. Because why? Because most pallets, when they're impacted, fail at those connections between the parts of a pallet. And so if we use more and higher quality fasteners, such as the rental companies do, right, to lower their repair costs and lower their damage, it reduces the overall cost significantly of using a pallet, while the cost of the fastener is only 5% of the cost of the pallet. Hmm. I want to ask you a question, um, you know, you talk about at the end, you know, there's a, the rental company owns, owns the pallet. It's sort of a two-part question, but A, 
how does one know who owns it? Is there an identifier on every pallet that makes it very clear who the uh, rightful legal owner is or which rental company is behind it? And B, I'm not maybe it's kind of related to this, but can you talk a little bit about um, the role or how RFID and uh, chips that sort of, uh, you know, could could track an item or a pallet have changed the pallet industry by making it so that you can look up on software where any, uh, or is it the case that you could look up anywhere and know exactly where a pallet is? Well, first of all, the identifying characteristics on the rental pallets are very clear. They're color-coded so that you know which rental company you're dealing with and there is printing on that pallet that declares ownership and title of those pallets. And the users of those pallets are well aware of this because if in the paperwork they lose a pallet, the rental organizations can issue a reconciliation, which means you lost this many pallets. This is what you owe me. So they will keep track of them. With regard to tracking the asset, okay. You've got two issues in the world of ID, whether they be barcodes or whether they be tags, passive or active. Right. And that is, are you tracking the capital asset of the pallet itself or are you tracking the product on it that's being shipped? Uh. Right now, that technology as applies to pallets is in its infancy. We have a lot more tagging going on the packaging and barcoding going on the packaging than we do on the pallets, okay? But it is clear that the growth in that sector of tracking these assets using electronic technology based on the pallet, whether it be the product on it or whether it be the asset pallet itself, is growing and it is inevitable that will come, but that is in its infancy at this point. Has anyone proposed blockchain for pallets yet? <laughs> I've heard it said, and that's all I know. <laughs> As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So why don't we get into um, what, what's been happening over the past year? I, I feel like we have a, a pretty decent lay of the um, pallet land, so to speak. So we've been hearing these anecdotal reports of 
a pallet shortage. I mentioned our Bloomberg colleague, Brendan Murray, reported a story, a good story on this um, a couple months ago. And we do know that prices have been going up per the subcomponent of the uh, PPI that I mentioned. So what exactly is going on here? In, in your opinion, is there a pallet shortage and have prices been going up? There is an imbalance between supply and demand. And you can trace that back to the winter of 20 and 21 and the COVID and the shutdown or turndown of our supply chains, all components of our supply chains. And then the resurgence in the spring and, and the perfect storm of, number one, labor shortages. Maybe the unemployment add-ons were good ideas, but they certainly made it difficult for companies to tool back up with labor. Okay, Number two, climate factors in here. The fires on the West Coast yeah. shut down mills. Uh, we, we had a lot of timber that was unavailable for harvesting out there, and that's a huge amount of timber. And that came on. Then all of a sudden in the spring, guess what? Agriculture comes back in. The harvest is coming. It was a perfect storm of um, wood raw material, a lack of availability because the mills tooled down over the winter because demand was low. The only pallet sector that really did well during that critical period of the pandemic was the food sector. And of course, that happens to be the largest user of pallets. So those folks continued well, but all other sectors, construction sector, et cetera, phased way down, and it came on gangbusters in the spring. And so we had these huge increases in pallet prices, which you mentioned earlier, uh, indices on pallets doubling uh, in the spring and in the summer. It was even more critical on the West Coast with softwood wood availability and the pallets on the West Coast being made out of softwood. Indices more than quadrupled on the lumber sector, and that reflected all the way down. Now, in the softwood sector, they've come back considerably. Pricing has moderated. But in the hardwood sector, the pricing at best is stabilized and still remains very, very high. And what we're trying to do is get back to a balance, okay? Most of the prognosticators are fingers crossed sometime in the uh, mid to late 2022 before we get back to the balance there. But it was a perfect storm in the spring and summer. You have actually noted that previously in the writings I have seen. No labor, no wood for the pallet sector, demand going through the roof. One of the reasons softwood came down uh, over the summer and into this fall was because housing starts came back up. But now you're going to see the price of even softwood lumber and pallets start to come back up gradually into next year and over the winter. So it was that perfect storm. My crystal ball is no better than anyone else's, I believe. So when you say, all right, I just want to walk through some of these factors. The labor shortage, that means just literally the workers at the factories to build pallets, right? Uh, yes, and also the lumber industry. And again, during the turndown, mills shut down and people were laid off. 
Right. Uh, and of course, the government came in and ordered an unemployment stimulus. I think that's great. But people were slow to return to the workforce. I think that's well documented. So and then you mentioned the fires on the West Coast. And then you said something about agriculture as being a factor. But I missed that. What was what's the element of agriculture in the story? Well, agriculture comes back online seasonally in this country. You know, oh, over over the winter, we are importing from the South, South America predominantly. But all of a sudden in the deserts of Arizona, in the early spring, harvests start in the very early spring. And that migration occurs from the deserts into Southern California and throughout the summer moves north up to the Pacific Northwest gradually as harvests come in. That was all coming online when all the other demands, non-food demands, for pallets and the construction industry was increasing dramatically. That seasonal aspect of agriculture further pressured pricing. Uh, you, you've noted some of the stories of the produce industry scrambling to find pallets. CHEP, its inability to supply pallets to its customers, scrambling. It was a massive scramble, imbalance between supply and demand that was just. A little bit crazy. (laughs) So this is also something I wanted to ask you, but, you know, when there is a shortage of pallets or a scramble for them, as you just described it, and prices are going up, what can companies actually do to cope? And what did we see users of pallets actually do over the past year? Yeah, first of all, they switch wood supplies. They find uh, they import wood or lumber that's available to make up for the deficits domestically. So it's it's basically the pallet industry trying to find raw material, dealing with labor, automating as best it can to replace labor. But it's that scramble for wood. Now, as far as their customers are concerned, uh, they also scramble for pallet supplies. They start moving between vendor suppliers. You know, they have incumbent vendor suppliers of pallets. They have to change around and find it. But there's no magic there. There, there, there. There's no magic. Are you saying, oh, they're going to start using a palletless system in their supply chain? No. Supply chains are designed around pallets. You can't all of a sudden switch to slip sheets, which might be available, which is a so-called palletless system. You can't do that. You certainly can't do that overnight. Could you switch to clamp loaders because there are no pallets available? Very little opportunity to do that because your packaging is not designed for clamp loaders. So it was a fantastic scramble for pallets going into boneyards, salvaging broken pallets and repairing pallets that Hmm. we would not have repaired before because it was uneconomical. But now it became economical. And so that helped fill some of the some of the gap there where we saw this these piles of pallets, which historically would never be repaired. We're starting to be repaired and put back into the market. That's what was going on. You know, when we talk about uh, supply chain issues overall, I mean, that and people talk about supply chain uh, logistics problems, stress, you know, it, it encompasses a few different things. There's maybe high demand for goods, as you've said, that puts stress on the system. 
There's obviously just sort of issues with production, as you described, with the uh, shortage of labor and the uh, the fires and so forth. One of the other elements, though, that comes up in some of the other episodes is the uh, the goods, the logistics uh, material being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so there are stories of, you know, the ships going back to China without containers because they didn't want to wait around because there weren't many exports. Or there might be a bunch of ch- uh, truck chassis that wind up at one port outside Chicago, but that's not where they're needed right now. Has the pallet industry seen some anything similar such that because of changing consumption patterns that there are pallets that are idle at the same time there is extreme demand for them somewhere else in the country. Haven't seen that. It's interesting. It's an interesting point. Again, for the industrial sector, pallets are generally not warehoused and reused. They're they're often just one way. Why? Because those pallets uh, are a unique design, which hmm. cannot be used in any other supply chain. Ah, the rental folks. Sure, they had inventory of pallets, but those are located strategically around the country. So to the extent they had pallets, they were available. I don't note that there were any regional issues. Now, one fact you need to be aware of, we do not palletize much product in freight containers. Freight containers are what we call floor-loaded predominantly. Why? Because that pallet takes up space, and that space is very expensive. In fact, right Right. now, it's extremely expensive. And so when that container reaches its destination, it's at that point it is palletized. And that could be East Coast, West Coast, anywhere in the country. And generally, there are going to be pallets in those regions in order to palletize the floor-loaded material upon arrival. I didn't realize that previously. In my mind, I was envisioning, like, say, like a bunch of iPhones or teddy bears or whatever is in a uh, container sitting on pallets and then being removed from the containers. And I hadn't thought about them being floor loaded. So this might be a good time. Can you just actually walk us once again, like through like the very basics of like where in the supply chains the pallets sit and move? And so the ship comes to the port. And then what happens? When does the pallet enter the picture and where does it go and where does it wind up? Well, that's not the right place to start. What you okay. do is you start at the manufacturing site for the right. phone. And I won't mention names, but let's say a phone. And quite frankly, let's face it, it's China. And so we have at the manufacturing site, the product is packaged. There it is put on pallets and okay. it will be moved to the port on pallets preparation for export. But it's at that point that the product is floor loaded into the container for shipment to whatever the destination country is. And then once that container arrives at a port, of course, it's not going to be unpacked at a port. It then has to leave the port on trucks. And we all know the availability issue on trucks uh, has had a huge impact on our supply chains here. That chassis with the freight container on it goes to a destination. Generally, it's going to go to a distribution center or a regional distribution center of the retailer or the distributor. It's at that point that it's at a loading dock. It is unloaded and palletized again. 
And then it is moved into storage in that DC, or if it's a crosstalk, on that pallet, it just moves from one side of the crosstalk to the other and ships to the brick-and-mortar store, if you will. Or, in the case of Amazon, to a fulfillment center. And, of course, the last mile uh, typically is store door, and that is not palletized. It's a very typical supply chain I just described. Real quickly, the palletization process of moving an item onto the pallet, how manual is that? Is that something that like takes a certain number of workers to like, get it right on the pallet? Or is that fairly, is that somewhat automated or is there a range of that process? Well, obviously, it, it depends on, number one, the country we're talking about and okay. the availability of labor. Okay. Historically, in in China, they'd had huge availability of labor. So there was a lot of manual palletization and their supply chains were somewhat manual. That's changing very, very rapidly, even in Asia. Korea has always been that way, where now, instead of manual, because of the cost of labor, they are automating palletization. And in this country, it's becoming pervasive. And, And generally, we have what's called row strip palletizing, where we push layers of packaged product onto a pallet, and then we change the elevation of the pallet, push another layer on and another layer on, et cetera, et cetera, until we fully palletized. Uh, those are highly automatic. We even use robotics where you want to miss mix skews on a pallet. You use robotic picker stations, and these are literally robots that we see uh, on television all the time. That is, in this country and most countries, rapidly replacing uh, manual palletization. So this relates to something else that I wanted to ask you, which is, what are the economic decisions or factors that go into a customer deciding whether or not to actually use pallets? And I'm guessing for a lot of them, pallets would be the de facto way to move things. But you did mention that there are palletless systems in the world. And I imagine you could probably also go the other way where instead of putting things on pallets, you're putting them in full-on wooden crates or, or something like that. So how do companies that make and ship goods actually make the decision to use pallets or not? Yeah, set aside crates. That's going to be unique structure for fairly unique uh, if you will, package product or product, uh, heavy equipment, for example, et cetera. If we set that aside, mm-hmm. the decision is along these lines. What is the cost of storing and moving my product, palletized or not palletized? Uh, for example, on slip sheets, the cost is the rate at which I can move product from actually, if the customer wants it on a pallet, to use the slip sheet to move it to a pallet and remove the slip sheet or leave it on there, okay? That's a slow process. Number two with slip sheets, it's the weight limiting. You can't put very, very heavy loads on a slip sheet, which is corrugated sheet or sometimes a plastic sheet. So you have the slow cost of movement and you have limitations on what you can put on slip sheets. Clamp loaders, another non-palletized. You have to invest more in your packaging system to withstand the compression 
of clamp loaders, and you don't want to use or move uh, fairly fragile products, although a lot of widescreen TVs are moved around with clamp loader systems. Also, you have to retrofit your forklifts with slip sheet devices or clamp loading devices. And again, clamp loading is slow. We can move product a lot faster on pallets. How are you storing your product? If you're going to use drive-in racks or rack storage, you can't use a slip sheet and it has to be palletized to withstand the bending stresses within a rack of the load on top of it. So those are the factors that go into the decisions. And so what we find is that by far, the products being shipped and moved, unitized, are on pallets. Very small percent, one, two percent, maybe in the world of clamp loading and in the world of slip sheeting. Uh, appliances are moved with the Bassel load system. That is a non-palletized system. So there are a few out there, but they're very small. Why? The cost and the limitations of the capability of non-palletless systems. Can you say, what was the name? How were, uh, how did you say appliances are moved? Basilode, uh, B-A-S-A-L-O-A-D. Uh, Basilode is a unique patented process where you lift a corrugated crate from the top with a special device on the forklift. Uh, mm. A lot of appliance companies use that. It's palletless, but some of them use pallets as well. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm going to use the, I, I, I already know I'm going to spend the rest of the day just looking at YouTube videos <laughs> of these different kinds because these are all new ideas to me and I have to visualize them. And I already see on YouTube there's a bunch of. They show the they show the different versions. Let me ask you another question. I looked at one of these uh, pallet rental places, and they also offer plastic pallets. And one of the uh, IGPS, which you mentioned, they have a big thing on their website. Plastic pallets are strong and durable. What is the limitation on there? How big of the market is there? And what is the opportunity for going something other than wood? Uh, the opportunity is there to justify, and, and my friends at IGPS will be the first to tell you that they can't afford, that's a more expensive pallet, they can't afford to have it idle and sit in warehouses. 
So if you look at where the, the IGPS or plastic pallet fits, it's where you have a lot of turns. You're going to okay. reuse that pallet more often. That then can justify the added expense of a plastic pallet. It is more durable. Some are repairable. Some are not. Okay. And your repair costs go way down. If you, if you look at, at rental companies on wood pallets, uh, and by the way, IGPS, what's their highest cost? It's moving empty pallets around. Okay. The second highest cost on the wood side is going to be repair repair and maintenance cost. And in, in the world of, of IGPS, there's much less of that because the pallets are more resistant to shocks and impacts in the field. But it's a significantly more expensive pallet. And please understand, you know the price of wood went up. Well, the price of plastic is high as well. Right, so right. they're dealing with the same raw material issues that the wood pallet are. And that's the majority of the cost in these pallets. But plastic pallets are growing in terms of their use in this country, still a small percentage. Quite frankly, there's not enough plastic resin if we wanted to make any wholesale switch. <laughs> there's just not enough resin around to do it. So that's another limitation as well. Let me give a plug to, uh, to our blog here, because anyone who is reading it, any Odd Lots subscribers, would know about the plastic shortage and what's been going on in resin prices a couple months ago, because I wrote about it. But this also brings me to another question. You know, in terms of weighing plastic versus wood, there is this interesting Australian company called Brambles that I think is supposed to be partnering with Costco to make plastic pallets. And you can imagine that Costco would be a very, very big um, customer of pallets given their business model. But my understanding is that Brambles has yet to make a decision on whether or not it's going to do a full conversion from wood to plastic. And I I'm curious, like, why the, the hesitancy? I know you mentioned the cost, but it kind of feels like for a big customer like Costco, it might make sense. And, and yet there seems to be some reluctance to do it. Well, they have to prove that in that supply chain, the pallets will not be lost. And, and that's a critical issue. This is a very expensive pallet and losses, which do occur. It's just a question of what percent losses occur. Look, Costco sees for their supply chain a significant advantage of a plastic pallet. And uh, CHEP is CHEP, which is a division of Brambles, obviously, you know, is going to respond to that because Costco uses a lot of their wood rental pallets. Okay, they are a big customer. When you get into pulling a plastic pallet, you have to track those. You can't lose them because of the cost of replacing that asset. So Costco, which is a significant chunk of, of CHEP's business, obviously wants to respond to their customer's desire. What is it about Costco's business model per se? I mean, you mentioned that plastic pallets, they kind of are only economical when there are a lot of turns. Um, what is it about Costco, particularly where they might view this as uh, their future? I'm going to say it simply. The, the store, the Costco entity you go to is a warehouse. Right. That supply chain is collapsed, if you will. There are DCs, but most of it's direct, unitized directly to the store from which you buy from the pallet. 
And so they can turn more quickly, number one. Number two, it's a little more of a closed loop because you have one less stop, if you will, along the way in their supply chain. So it could work. Uh, Chep's idea is that as the supply of a plastic pallet, if it does work, the test is successful, uh, exceeds maybe Costco's demand, they could start to filter that outside of Costco. Gets risky, though. It gets very risky because then the potential for losses increase. But the test is ongoing, and we'll see the result, hopefully, in, in a few months. So I guess I just have one last question. I mean, what, what's, what's exciting to you? What's the future? I mean, you, we were just talking a little bit about um, plastic pallets, but in terms of areas of research, and one of the things that probably surprises both of us is that, you know, the idea of like a whole institute for the study of pallets, the institute goes on, what is like the hot new thing or the thing that people in this space are excited about for uh, the next generation, the future of pallets? Don't just focus on the pallet. That's the future. We, what we need to do is design the packaging and the pallet and the equipment used to move unit loads together as a system of interacting components. I call that systems-based design of the global supply chain. It's more important to understand how does the pallet mechanically interact with the packaged product and mechanically interact with all of the unit load handling equipment, including trucks and trailer floors. It's understanding those mechanical interactions and using that understanding to go from component-based design, where, where we're just focused on reducing the cost of a conveyor in a DC without thinking about how it interacts with the pallet. And we're all focused about reducing the cost of that plastic bottle without thinking about how does the pallet design affect that design. We have three design communities that are not interacting enough. And, and therefore, we need to move from component-based design to systems-based design of our global supply chains. Yeah, this kind of feels like a recurring theme with supply chains where one aspect of it is just not talking or efficiently interacting with another aspect of it. It's true. Can you just give, just to, to help conceptualize this, can you just give an example of like, I mean, it sounds very good how the product interacts with the palette, but can you give an example of an industry or a product that has sort of like, there's a unique solution that's different? Like just walk us through an example of what you're thinking about. The OEM supply chain of the automotive industry has been pretty good to implement systematic design. They have done a very excellent job, and I've been involved through AIAG, the Automotive Industry Action Group, in assisting the industry to implement this philosophy. And they've done that by using a returnable packaging system as part of the OEM distribution supply chain. Many of the uh, returnable packaging systems are plastic, and the pallet is plastic as well. And they've modified how they handle this through the portions of the supply chain. That's an example of a pretty significant success of implementing this very strategic approach. And it's a closed loop, so it's easy to do it, isn't it, between OEM and the assembly plants? Right. 
The beverage industry, to some extent, and the brewers have the similar capability because um, we're not going down to retail. We basically have a shorter supply chain where we can just focus on the brewer down to uh, distribution centers and the brewer distributor, and then the packaging components go back in the case of a pallet. The automotive industry has expanded that to go towards reusable packaging systems as well. You know, unless we've got a bottle bill, we don't do much in the brewing sector. (laughs) Marshall, I I think that's a great place to leave it. Really appreciate you coming on and uh, explaining the pallet industry in so much um, depth and detail, but really fascinating conversation. Thank you. Yeah, that was fantastic. Thank, Thank you so much. It is my pleasure. As you can tell, I enjoy these forums. I'm a teacher at heart, and so um, don't hesitate to call upon me again if it's appropriate. So I'm so glad that we finally got to do that episode. And it does feel like, I don't know... I'm just thinking we sort of started with the shipping industry and then we got into containers specifically. And it's only now that we're sort of getting into even smaller subcomponents, which would be pallets. And I kind of I, I'm wondering what comes next. There must be well, another thing. I mean, you talked about connectors and the metal connectors. Yeah. And of course, that came up. The steel truss plates, of course, came up with stints and Dean on lumber. So I don't know whether we want to go fasteners or truss plates, but I did speak to uh, uh, someone in the trust plate industry who was like had some very strong, t- very strong thoughts on the phone. So I think uh, maybe the next one is a, a trust plate one. On the other hand, someone on Twitter said there's like some nozzle that they can't get for like a gas thing that's like messing up like all um, home gas heating, and it's just like one little piece. Wow. So there's a million, uh, there's a million stories uh, still to do on just. All the little things that we're supposed to, that we usually never think about, but this year we're all very aware of. Yeah. And I guess the, the theme that keeps emerging is a, yes, this is the year that we all suddenly became aware of supply chains and how normally they work and yeah. we don't really think about it. But this year we are thinking and talking about it a lot. But then secondly, all of these things are sort of isolated industries unto themselves. And again, to Marshall's yeah last point that seems to be problematic when there is an issue it doesn't feel like you know the guy that's making trust plates is necessarily talking to the lumber company or the home builders uh, and it doesn't feel like maybe the pallet makers are talking to I, i don't know like the forklift drivers about how to wring better efficiencies out of the entire system i thought that was really interesting the idea of like the future is not necessarily like changing the palette per se, though there are is yeah. evolution in palette design, but in uh, communication. And that is like that is right. Like, as you said, and, you know, we had that episode with uh, John Porcari, uh, the White House ports envoy, and he made the case that like communication alone is maybe, you know, not can I- increase throughput, even if your sort of like physical stock of capabilities is fixed. And granted, you want to improve the physical stock of capabilities, but sometimes there's gains to be made from communication. So like long term, just the idea that like, well, instead of just thinking about making a better pallet, thinking about how 
the bottle companies or the TV companies or the whatever food companies can think about integrating the products with the palate as like the next thing that communication is a very like uh, a very fascinating uh, thing to think about, I think. Yeah, totally. And definitely a, a recurrent theme on these episodes. Um, Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. All right. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. there it's joe weisenthal and tracy alloway and we are the co-hosts of the odd lots podcast and we want to tell you about a new podcast here at bloomberg we're really excited about money stuff the podcast that's right friend of the pod matt levine is teaming up with our other friend and bloomberg tv host katie greifeld to bring the money stuff newsletter to life Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.